0: Hello, you're listening to The Radicast, and this episode is about the fiddleheads of the common lady fern, Ethereum Felix Thamina. Hi, my name is Joe Stormer, and welcome to the fifth episode of The Radicast. This is a scientific podcast about foraging, named after Tolkien's Radigast the Brown, also known as Birdfriend who cared for the flora and fauna of Middle-earth. With every episode, I do my best to research, harvest, and cook some species of forageable plant, fungus, or algae, and I tell you all about it. That strum of that banjo means it's taxonomy time. Taxonomy, the science of classification, is derived from the Greek word taxis, meaning arrangement. Taxidermy, the arrangement of leathered skin over a skeleton, is derived from that same word. Now drop that knowledge bomb at your next job interview and or first date. So why do I start off with taxonomy? Hmm, why do I start off with taxonomy? Because this is a system of how we describe just how this species or this group of species is different from all other species of life. So what makes a lady fern a lady fern? As usual, we start at the top, at kingdom. Lady ferns belong in the kingdom plantae. These are plants, you know, those pretty green things you see everywhere. Sometimes plants are other colors, but mostly green. And not all green things are plants. Some green things are frogs. The next clade, or group of organisms with a common ancestor, is tracheophytes. These are vascular plants which contain passages for carrying water and dissolved nutrients. This differentiates them from bryophytes like moss. The class under that is pronounced something like Polypodiopsida maybe. Um, These are ferns. Now ferns evolved somewhere around 360 million years ago in the Devonian period, but then they diversified into the ferns we know sometime during the Cretaceous. All modern ferns are cryptogams, meaning hidden reproduction. They reproduce via dust-like spores instead of seeds. Now the term cryptogam can also refer to other organisms with vaguely similar reproductive processes, like mosses, lichen, and even fungi. And what these all have in common is that there's nary a flower among them. So let's talk about the reproductive cycle of cryptogams like ferns. This is some pretty cool shit. In the course of reproduction, ferns go through two alternating generations, one of which is rarely seen and even more rarely thought of. So picture in your mind a fern. That is a generation called a sporophyte, meaning a spore-producing plant. The leaves of the sporophyte produce tiny dust-like spores that float away on the wind and, with a little luck, land on just the right type of soil or other substrate that has enough moisture for the spore to sprout into a tiny little fleck of a plant called a gametophyte. This gametophyte will be maybe the size of a lentil, probably just a single flat leaf called a prothallus, which is only a single cell thick. It doesn't even have true roots, but instead is anchored through structures called rhizoids each of which is only a single elongated cell. But when the conditions are right and the soil is moist, it's time to get busy. These little gametophytes will release literal swimming sperm from male structures called antheridia, which wriggle through the wet soil in search of other gametophytes with female structures called archegonia. If all goes well, these sperm will fertilize the eggs in the archegonia, and from each archegonia will sprout a tiny little fern leaf and another slightly less tiny fern leaf, each one bigger than the last. Sooner or later, you've got a full-grown fern on your hands, which again is a sporophyte generation that we're familiar with. The sporophyte is the generation that has full-size fern leaves that reproduces asexually via spores, whereas the gametophyte is the little speck of a plant that reproduces sexually via eggs and sperm. One leads to the other. Sorry, maybe I should have given a content warning at the top about plant sexy time. Now, there was a time when there were plants called seed ferns, or pteridosperms, spelled with a P, kind of like pterodactyl. These are actually seed-bearing plants called spermatophytes, like flowers or conifers. They evolved around the same time as the true ferns that we know, and the fossil record suggests that they survived at least into the Eocene epoch, with the youngest fossils thought to be between 51 and 52 million years old. But while fossil records of the coelacanth disappeared 66 million years ago, and they were thought to be long extinct, there's really no deep sea for the seed fern to hide in. But back to true ferns, cryptogams that reproduce via spores. The leaves of the sporophyte are usually referred to as fronds. Fronds can be either sporophylls or trophophylls. Trophophylls are the leaves whose only purpose is to photosynthesize and provide energy for the plant. This word is derived from the ancient Greek words tropa, meaning nourishment, and phyllan meaning leaf. And then it's the sporophylls, whose role is to produce the spores. Sporophylls can sometimes be green, you know, producing their own energy via photosynthesis. But other times they are completely specialized and they might just be off-white or brown or something like that. These two types of fronds are commonly referred to as sterile and fertile fronds these two types may look almost identical sometimes, or they may look distinctly different, kind of like with grape ferns or deer ferns. But not all ferns look fern-like. Some have unbranched, strap-shaped leaves, like the heart-tongue fern, but the stereotypical fern has compound leaves. The most simple compound leaves are pinnate, this means that each frond is a single leaf that is subdivided so that it has smaller leaflets arranged along a central stem. Sword ferns are a good example, as are the leaves of ash trees and pea vines. A bit more complicated than that is bipinnate. These are the fronds whose leaflets are further divided into tinier leaflets, so that each leaf stem branches into smaller leaf stems. And after that is tripinnate. This is some fractal shit going on. Each leaf stem divides into smaller leaf stems, which divide into even smaller leaf stems. Now in classification, after class comes order, and the order that lady ferns fall into is polypodialis. These are referred to casually as polypods, meaning many feet. These have historically been defined by the anatomy of their sporangia the tiny, spore-producing organs which are arranged in clusters called sori. They evolved around 100 million years ago, around the same time that flowering plants first rose to dominance. Now below order is suborder, and this is the suborder Aspleninae. These are named for the spleenwort fern genus Asplenium, which includes species commonly known as bird's nest ferns and walking ferns. However, we're not going to the family of Asplenium. Instead, we're going to the family Atheriaceae. This family, conveniently, is eponymous for the genus of the lady firm, Ethereum. They are characterized by having monolith spores, meaning each one having a single microscopic line, indicative of how the cell had divided from another spore. In 2016, the Pteridophyte phylogeny group defined Atheriaceae as containing three genera, in addition to ethereum there's diparium false spleen warts, and diplasium the twin sori ferns these ferns are defined as developing from spore producing clusters on both sides of the lethane now finally the genus ethereum commonly referred to as lady ferns ethereum is derived from the greek for without a shield meaning that the indusium, which is the covering of the spore producing structures called sori is inconspicuous. Ethereum contains about 180 species. Very recently, Hasler and Schmidt divided this genus further into three more genera in their publication checklist of ferns and lycophytes of the world. So we'll see if the wider research community comes to more or less agree with this. And finally, Ethereum Felix Femina. This is the common lady fern. Felix meaning fern in Latin, Femina meaning Lady? The distribution of the common lady fern is circumboreal, growing all throughout the higher latitudes of North America and Eurasia. Here in North America, they range from Alaska down to California, across to Texas, and on to Florida, and up the coast all the way to Labrador. They grow in meadows, woods, and wetlands, and they have even been recorded in West Virginia, growing in two to four inches of water. They prefer more acidic soil, in which the pH range is around 4.5 to 6.5. And they've been known to grow up to about 10,000 feet of elevation in states like Utah, California, and Arizona. Aetherium distentifolium is the alpine lady fern, also known as Aetherium alpestre. And around here they have the same range, though uh, the latter is a smaller, high-altitude relative. The common lady fern is listed as exploitably vulnerable. This species is in relatively good shape, but it is listed as exploitably vulnerable in New York, and the subspecies southern lady fern is threatened in Florida. The common lady fern, in general, can handle temperatures down as low as negative 4 degrees Fahrenheit or negative 20 degrees Celsius. And they can even survive infrequent low-intensity fires. The fronds of the lady fern are cespitose. The fronds are cespitose in the way that they all emerge together from a central cluster rather than popping up out of the dirt individually along the length of a rhizome. This will come in handy for identification later. The leaves are bipinnate to tripinnate. Each frond is divided into leaflets, whose leaflets are divided into smaller leaflets and those leaflets often divide into even tinier leaflets, but they don't always. It has a very delicate look and feel, they bear yellow spores, and the deciduous fronds emerge each spring and die back in the fall. The fronds drop off once exposed to frost, and I've learned that by keeping one indoors, they'll hang on longer, but they just get rattier and rattier. However, I've also learned that kept outside here at sea level in Washington, they can produce a second wave of leaves in the season if the first wave of leaves is cut back. Generally these leaves are up to a meter long and 10 inches wide, but it's not unheard of that they'll grow up to two meters tall. Each frond is elliptically shaped such that if you laid it out on the floor and looked at it from above it would be kind of like an opening eye uh, coming to more or less a point at either end. The petiole stem bases are swollen and they can function as tropopods, storing starch. Robin Schwerbach and Christoph Luschner expose the leaves of lady fern and four other woodland fern species to heavy water, water molecules that are made with a relatively rare isotope of hydrogen. Heavy water is made with deuterium, a hydrogen isotope that has a nucleus that contains a neutron. The predominant hydrogen isotope is called protium, and it has only a single proton for its nucleus. No neutrons at all. The scientists were able to track the way that the heavy water passed from the droplets on the leaves into the leaves where it was absorbed and on to other parts of the plant, suggesting that this may be a widespread technique for woodland ferns to absorb rain and dew, and the researchers suggested that the structures of tiny hair-like trichomes could be playing a role. Now many plants utilize a hormone abscisic acid to regulate the opening and closing of their stomata. This hormone is released within the roots that are exposed to dry soil, triggering the stomata to close. Researchers Cardoso et al. found that lady ferns exposed to this abscisic acid showed no closure of the stomata when the plant was artificially exposed to the hormone. Instead, they found that the hydraulic dynamics within and without the plants are what trigger these opening closures of these tiny pores. It's not a hormone controlling these pores, but rather the rigidity of the stomata's guard cells and the rigidity of the overall leaves. Let's talk about reproduction. Like many other ferns, lady ferns spread vegetatively via rhizomes, but also via spore. Again, all modern ferns are spore-producing cryptogams. These spores are hardy and have been found to remain viable even after passing through the gut of an earthworm, as found by researcher Johann Jacob Schneller. Unlike many other plants, lady fern populations have been found not to be genetically separated from populations at other elevations that are relatively close geographically. Instead, long distance spore dispersal is hypothesized to exchange genetic materials across topographical gradients from high elevation to low elevation, from low elevation to high elevation. Schneller and colleague Bergi Liebst tested this in Switzerland and by testing them against Italian and Spanish populations, the researchers were able to show that the ferns are genetically different over long distances, but they are genetically similar over short distances regardless of elevation. Now, a really interesting study was undertaken by Dorothy Curry and Gary K. Greer. These heart-shaped chordate gametophytes of the lady fern were grown on auger growth media, with half of the auger having been used before and half of it being new. They found that the agar which had been previously used for growing gametophytes yielded a higher number of male antheridia and fewer female archegonia likely as a result of hormones like antheridiogeon. The takeaway from this is that the more gametophytes grow in an area, the more they are male. As many of us self-isolating without partners are more than familiar with, it's important that lady fern gametophytes are able to self-fertilize in case a single plant happens to be grown in isolation with no other gametophytes to do with. Sporophytes emerging from inbred gametophytes are weaker than outbred gametophytes, as demonstrated by Schneller and colleague Rolf Holderier. Schneller found that a mix of gametophytes coming from different parents yielded the most vigorous growth and the lowest mortality. Inter-gametophytic selfing, meaning the sibling offspring of a single parent fertilizing each other, this led to higher mortality But self-fertilization, meaning a gametophyte is fertilized by the exact same gametophyte, yielded the shortest leaves and the highest level of mortality. So I suppose the more male antheridia that there are around, flooding the area with sperm, the less likely that a gametophyte will self-fertilize. Now ecologically, elk, deer, and bear have all been documented eating lady fern because it's good, which... Actually, that reminds me that I have some black bear scat in the fridge, and I have been meaning to see if I can germinate any seeds from that. Now, I want to give a rundown of some human uses of this plant. Much of this information is drawn from the Plants for a Future website, which provides a great conglomeration of species-by-species information, including both historic and contemporary ethnobotanical uses. Quite a few researchers contributed to information I found in the Native American Ethnobotanical Database but none as much as Nancy J. Turner. A good bit of this information also came out of her book, Traditional Plant Foods of Canadian Indigenous Peoples. Now roasted roots of the lady fern have been reported to be eaten by the Quileute, Quinault, Salish, and Dena'ina peoples, although Turner suggests that this may possibly be a case of mistaken identity between lady fern and Dryopterus wood fern, a mistake on the part of the ethnographers. The bulbs that grow on the roots have been eaten by the Maka, and they have been recorded to be used as a sign of available water by the Naselchim people, also known as the Okanagan. The fronds have been used for covering food by the Kolets, the Naitinat, and the Shuswap people. The Kwakiutl people have used it to cover mushrooms that are being roasted to make red paint. The Karak have used it to clean blood from eels. And the fiddleheads themselves have been well documented to be eaten by the Salish people, including the Klallam. 100 grams of fresh fiddleheads yield 34 calories, 91 grams of water. Not surprising there. 3.2 grams of protein, of the about 50 grams that an adult needs to eat every day. Two tenths of a gram fat, 4.9 grams carbohydrate, bit of riboflavin, bit niacin and about nine milligrams vitamin C. Medicinal uses that have been recorded include being used as a diuretic by the Ojibwe, as an analgesic by the Cowlitz. The Heshquit people have used the fiddleheads particularly to deal with ovarian cancer. As far as easing labor pains, the Maka have used a decoction of the stems, and the Meskwaki have used a decoction of the root. Grated root has been applied to skin sores by the Ojibwe people, They've also used a root infusion to promote lactation, as had the Potawatomi. In the event of bloody vomit, it's been used by the N'laqatma people. In the case of intestinal fevers during pregnancy, the Haudenosaunee, also known as Iroquois people, have used a root infusion together with New England aster, And the Haudenosaunee have also used an herbal mixture of it for delaying water breaking. An infusion of the lady fern rhizome and that of the sensitive fern has been used to attempt to treat venereal disease. And the Heldsuk people have used it as an eyewash. And in the Diano Valley of Italy, it has been used together with honey to treat cough. Now let's talk safety. First, bioaccumulation. The researchers Kumara et al. tested 12 ferns and 2 horsetail species for accumulation of trace elements and all of them fell short of accumulation rates that would classify them as hyperaccumulators. On the bright side, there's a low risk that you will be exposed to heavy metals that the plant has taken up from the soil, but as a negative, they're also unsuited for the use of phytoextraction as a means of removing those pollutants from the soil. The authors suggested this could be the result of adaptations to avoid metal uptake in order that the plants can tolerate growth in areas that are otherwise too toxic for most other plants, and that perhaps some of these species could still be used for soil stabilization during this restoration process. The researchers, Semeka Simmerman et al., compared the concentrations of 15 metals in the leaves and the rhizomes of the lady fern collected in southwest Poland, and they compared these to maps of rock types. they found these to correspond so strongly that the metal concentrations could be used to extrapolate the rock substrate below just by testing the plant tissues. But now let's get into some organic chemistry. Lady ferns produce thiaminase, which is a compound that is found in many, if not all, ferns. Thiaminase breaks down thiamin, vitamin B1. Severe thiamin deficiency leads to beriberi, which is a disease of the debilitation of the cardiovascular and the nervous systems. Luckily for us, thiaminase is easily destroyed by cooking, as has been shown in many studies. You know, I might munch on a raw fiddlehead or two occasionally when I'm out in the field, but I do not make a habit of it. Thiaminase is also water soluble, but I am not familiar to what extent soaking fiddleheads will remove this compound. It is believed by many, not all, that the imperialist explorers Burke and Wills in Australia died from beriberi as a result of eating raw, spore-producing bodies from a very odd aquatic fern called nardu. Properly prepared, however, this was and is a valuable food plant for the aboriginal peoples of the area. Now, the website Plants for a Future, generally a good resource, is among a good number of sources that state that thiaminase can be destroyed by drying the plant matter thoroughly but try as I might, I cannot find any evidence to support this. This may be yet another example of the echo chamber of self-appointed foraging experts, each quoting one another, but no one checking to see if there's any research to verify the claim. Either way, dried fiddleheads don't sound good. Now, speaking of unsubstantiated claims, you cannot go too far on the internet without finding people stating that fiddleheads are carcinogenic. (sighs) Okay, let's dive into this. Now this comes from folks confusing information about common fiddlehead species like lady fern and ostrich fern, both of which unfurl like a scroll, with information about the shoots of the bracken fern, which is distinctly different and looks as it's coming out of the ground kind of like a creepy little green baby alien fist. The word bracken is simply derived from Nordic linguistic roots for fern, and it applies to the genus Pteridium, also spelled with a P. This vegetable is a very popular constituent in the Korean dish bibimbap and in its raw form contains three questionable compounds. The first, thiaminase, as already discussed, breaks down easily in cooking. Secondly, we have hydrogen cyanide. This is a compound that has a slight bitter almond flavor, though it's a different cyanide compound than benzaldehyde, which gives food a bitter almond or cherry flavor. You'll notice when you cook brackens that they can smell like cherries, but don't let cyanide scare you. As is evidenced by the fact that we can eat cherries, our bodies are more than capable of consuming trace amounts of cyanide. However, hydrogen cyanide is a much more dangerous compound. This is a weak acid that is used as a defense mechanism against insects. It has the ability to cause insects to continuously molt their exoskeletons until they just waste away which is pretty damn cool in my opinion. Not so cool is that this chemical has also been used in war as a form of poison gas by the U.S., France, and Italy. In World War II, this was the Zyklon B compound, which was used for mass murder in the Nazi death camps. It has also been used in state-sanctioned executions in the United States, which is only marginally less genocidal, considering the capital punishment disproportionately targets racial minorities and the disabled. That horrific history aside, we can rest assured when eating brackens that hydrogen cyanide isn't sticking around when we cook it because it boils at just above room temperature. On the other hand, benzaldehyde, the uh, bitter almond flavor, doesn't boil until 178 degrees Celsius or 352 degrees Fahrenheit, That cherry flavor is gonna stick around after you've cooked your bracken ferns, so don't worry about it. Now, the third compound, and the reason that people will erroneously say that fiddleheads are carcinogenic, is tequilicide. Tequilicide, not to be mistaken for the Harper Lee novel of similar name, this is a legit mutagenic compound, and it is not known to occur in lady fern. It's found in the highest concentration in young plants, which are the ones that are good for eating. It has been shown to be carcinogenic among mammals in laboratory testing, and it is suspected to be related to esophageal cancer hotspots in Brazil and Japan. Poisoning of cattle has been documented when no other forage is available, and the toxin is at least suspected to be sometimes passed to humans through raw milk. Also, researchers at Rasmussen et al. have found that tequilicide from bracken can pass through sandy soil into groundwater where the plant grows in abundance. Luckily for us, tequilicide is unstable at room temperature and is easily destroyed by cooking. In one study using rats, tumor incidence was found to be 78.5% when the rats were fed untreated bracken, but this dropped down to about 25% when the bracken was boiled with wood ash, 10% with baking soda, and 4.7% with salt. Now I don't know how long these were cooked, or how much bracken these poor mice were forced to eat, but it is worth keeping in mind that lab rats are extremely inbred and are usually forced to eat ridiculous amounts of potentially dangerous materials in lab studies. Nevertheless, it's clear that additives of cooking water can be an extra safety measure when consuming bracken. This carcinogen is water soluble, as is demonstrated by the groundwater study, and I've heard that there is a Japanese preparation method that involves soaking it in multiple changes of water. But to back up, In a mildly alkaline environment, tequilicide converts into the extremely unstable compound deanone, which is the compound that actually does the genetic damage. It is worth mentioning that the human body is mildly alkaline, in the ballpark of a pH of about 7.4. Deanone then reacts with adenine and guanine, the A and the G in our genetic code, splitting the DNA strand. Nasty shit. Well, let's talk about risk. By studying esophageal and gastric cancer combined, one study by Marlieri et al. found that the frequency of upper gastric cancer was between 5.1 and 8.1 times higher among individuals who consumed Bracken daily. Taking the averages of these two numbers and doing a little bit of back of the envelope math, one could roughly extrapolate that regularly consuming Bracken could raise the likelihood in the United States of contracting either of these two cancers from 14 in every 100,000 to almost 1 in every 1,000. Of course, this is not a super-scientific calculation, and that's a big enough number that I would give a little bit of thought before consuming large quantities of Bracken on a daily basis, but I personally feel perfectly fine eating it occasionally. That said, in a chapter of the book Bioactive Natural Products, Miguel E. Alonso Emelote explains that in Ouro Preto, Brazil, where the previously mentioned study was performed, it is typical to cook Bracken only briefly, and that it is presumed that tequilicide is not being thoroughly broken down in such a short period of heat. Further, there is evidence that in Brazil between 18 and 50% of upper gastric cancerous activity contain the viruses HPV16 and HPV18. The cancerous growths associated with Bracken ferns test positively for this viral DNA. This gives reason to hypothesize that the HPV vaccines Gardasil and Gardasil 9 may reduce the risk of Bracken associated cancer. You know, it's my personal assessment for myself that infrequent consumption of Bracken paired with thorough cooking will greatly minimize the risk of cancer associated with Bracken consumption and the HPV vaccination sweetens the deal. Do your own research though and make your own decision. Now it's time to head out in the field. Just so you know, I recorded the foraging and cooking of this episode almost a year ago, near the beginning of the lockdown here in Washington State, but before the police murder of George Floyd, which plunged folks like myself into a season of sustained daily protest. Well, good morning. Uh, This is a morning in early May and I'm up here on the west slope of the Cascade Mountains. I'm standing above Mine Creek, which is a tributary of the Snoqualmie River. I was really looking forward to foraging along this creek, but uh, I am at too high of an altitude. So there are patches of snow around me, and I would guess that it's probably about 750 feet above me would be where solid snow begins. I'm currently at about 2,500 feet, Um, I've risen about 500 feet in the last mile and a half from where I parked my car. I drove up here as far as I could, as far as my car could handle. And I walked the remainder of the way. When I left my car, there, I could see foxglove coming up, um, a bit of fireweed. The Pacific Bleeding Heart was in full bloom. Up here, we have just the sprouts of Bleeding Heart, and we have, uh, we have Colt's Foot in full bloom and some of the Colt's Foot leaves coming up. There are a lot of gun casings around here. We're in the National Forest where people just do whatever the hell. I'm going to try to go back across Money Creek here. The culvert is completely washed out, but I can pick my way across the rocks. All right, back to safety so where i'm at right now is is pretty well surrounded by red alder this is an early succession plant in the forests here they love disturbance and uh, once they grow up and get old and die and probably give way to fungus like honey mushrooms that's when the conifers will move in you definitely see a lot of hemlock around here hemlock is pretty dominant right about here you see some dug fur i saw a little bit of grand fir further down And I think Pacific silver fir is the one that looks like a grand fir with the leaves completely flat out, but with like a little bit of a mohawk of shorter leaves sticking straight up from the twig. If I remember correctly, noble fir is the kind of like upturned bottle brush. Subalpine fir is like that, but shorter leaves and more condensed. I don't know if you can hear that, sounds wonderful. I don't know my bird sounds very well, but I do know that I've been seeing a lot of American Robin thrush around here. Ooh, okay. Now this is the upturned bottle brush that I'm thinking about that I think is no woofer and it has blunt tip, not notched. Although I think I might've heard that on the branches where it's yielding cones that there is notching um don't quote me on that although I will put it into the transcript alongside this logging road here there's a good bit of salmonberry which is a pretty weedy native with really pretty flowers I see some sword fern on the edges beside the road there are some pretty dense groups of deer fern and in the woods themselves salal and an occasional Oregon grape there's some Devil's Club, which has buds that are edible, but the buds aren't out yet at this altitude. And here, at this altitude, I see, as I'm walking downhill, I see some evergreen violet, Viola sempervirens. At this altitude, they're just opening up, but as I walk along, I'll see a lot more. One fine thing about Viola sempervirens is that it's really different from our other native violets because it has very tough leaves. And the leaves and the flower all taste kind of minty. It's bizarre. Here are some fiddleheads along the road here, but I think I saw a bunch more further down. I'm gonna wait until I get there. Here is a real good patch. On a normal road, I would not collect beside the, the road, but I mean, this is a logging road, there's not much traffic. I can't imagine there are many leaks of oil and antifreeze not much in the way of emissions this road is built just out of stone there aren't any hydrocarbons being used as a foundation now to minimize the amount of damage i do these plants the amount of trauma i've pulled out a knife just a basic utility knife and i'm gonna cut these off you know i will harvest these until they're about they're kind of opening up. You know, some of these will have some like little leaves coming on unfurled, those are good. Good technique to preserve the population is uh, try not to take more than a third of every plant, and maybe take every third plant. Every second or third plant is a good way to go. So, I'm cutting these off at the base, tossing them in my bag. So, to describe these. I guess the the side opposite of that it's unfurling on is rounded whereas the inside of it that it's unfurling from has a divot kind of like kind of like the inside of celery the whole thing is really has these brown scales attached to it I don't know if that keeps it from sticking together or if that's simply protective to keep insects off it and the little leaves I can see they are almost bipinnate off of each frond, there is a leaf that comes into smaller leaves. Okay, that's bipinnate. They're almost tripennate because each of those leaves has lobes that are almost subdivided all the way to the stem, but not quite. So I'd say that these are still bipinnate. Above me where I'm collecting is a really gorgeous elderberry tree that's probably about three or four inches across at the base. The leaves on it are coming out. Probably a red elderberry. That's what you most commonly find out here. Below me, I'm seeing a little bit of gallium, uh, a little bit of Siberian miners lettuce popping up. Claytonia something something. Oh, these are beautiful. These are really beautiful fiddleheads. heads. I'd say they're about half an inch thick and the tallest that I'm collecting are, oh, probably nine inches. great- In the course of less than 15 minutes, I gathered about five pounds of this and there's still a lot more to go in this patch. Um, so this is more than I can personally use. so that means that I'll be swinging by some friends' houses and dropping off bags for them to eat too. I'm continuing back down the road and keeping an eye out for other keeping an eye out for other appealing plants to eat. This early in the spring at this elevation, kind of doubt that I'm going to find any mushrooms, but I'll keep an eye out. And there are some Trillium, which are kind of nice to eat too. If You boil it with a change of water. it's uh, can be really nice. Those of you out east, in the Midwest or whatever, probably think I'm a monster for eating it. I only eat one of the three leaves, and also our populations here in the Pacific Northwest have not been devastated The same way that they have then by invasive earthworms out east. But I'm only seeing a few of them. If I saw them in more abundance I'd probably take some, but not when they're just a few. On the other hand though, here instead are some evergreen violets, viola sempervirens. This is a pretty large population so I'm going to grab some of these to take home to add to my salads. And also I think I'll press some to send to my nieces for their birthday. These have evergreen violet has a leaf that kind of sits on the ground during the winter, kind of pokes up a little more in the spring, and they have these really gorgeous little yellow flowers with some little stripes on the petals. Here's a small hillside that's just completely covered with deer fern. They're still laying over, squished down by the snow, but I can see some little red fiddleheads just starting to poke up. Hmm. And somewhere around here I saw a yew tree. I'd really like to take some cuttings from that to try to grow at home. But it's a little bit hard to spot them sometimes among all the hemlocks that have growth structure superficially. Ah, gorgeous. Seeing some huckleberries with leaves out. Vaccinium something something something. And I'm also seeing some other things that really look like lady fern they tend to grow a little bit drier like for example if you see a bunch of lady fern along a stream bank these will be just a little higher on the great stream bank they're a little bit reddish thinner um, a little bit tougher a little more spindly um, and they don't taste good kind of bitter so i um, not gonna eat that Spent a bit more time wandering around South Fork Noqualmie River, and I got a few more edible things. I got a whole bunch of hedge nettle, some species of statues. Uh, one nice thing about that is that overharvest is considerably less of a concern with hedge nettle because um, it seems like people really don't think it tastes good, but I don't mind it. So I brought that home. I also found some sort of mustard, something in the brassicaceae family and I brought that home too. I tossed those two things together with my evergreen violets and that will be my salad greens for the week. I also found not a lot, but I found a patch of trillium that was large enough that I could take one of the three leaves from an individual plant. I brought some of those home, got those in a jar ready to boil. Um, if you're going to eat trillium, first of all, Make sure you're in an area where it is plentiful enough that you can't ethically harvest it. In areas that have been invaded with earthworms, so basically east coast, probably most of Appalachia by now, the midwest. Places where earthworms were wiped out by glaciers and have been reintroduced by European settlers, myself included. trillium has just been decimated in many areas. So if you're out east, don't touch them probably. But out here, trillium is doing great, so I brought home a little bit of that. You'll want to boil it, pour off the water. When you smell the water you pour it off and then you smell the trillium, you can smell a difference and you can smell exactly what you poured off. And you'll be like, yeah, yeah, I really don't want to eat that. Um, I also found a little bit of oyster mushrooms, so I'll probably just fry those up. Is that everything? Oh, and I guess I ate some big leaf maple blossoms too. Yeah, I think that's all. Now, what I need to do is I need to take out of my oven a mixture of peat moss and herlite that I have sterilizing. I do not buy peat moss anymore because of the environmental impact of peat moss, but then also because of the climate impact, because the moment you dry peatlands, the emission of greenhouse gases from the carbon that is stored up in that peat is astronomical. So I bought this peat from a garden store before I knew of the impact of peat, and I will never buy it again. Yeah, so I dried that out in the oven at about 250 degrees, and I will be using that to try to start my yew cuttings, as well as some kinnikinnik, or bearberry, berry, scientific name Arctostaphylos uva ursi. This is a bit of a misnomer because kinnikinnik actually is an Algonquin word, or rather derived from an Algonquin word, for smoking mixture, of which Archostopolis uva ursi was only one component. So as soon as this potting mixture dries down, I'm going to put these cuttings into it and see if I can get some of these growing. Whew. What am I going to do with these fiddleheads? So I have a massive bag of these. I was... I'm kicking myself. I was going to dig up a couple plants to bring home to test because of how I've been reading about different uses of the subterranean parts of the plant. I just forgot. So I don't know, maybe I will do that for another episode someday. Or hey, if you've ever tried this, I would love it if you tweeted at me, commented on iTunes or CastBox or SoundCloud, or even emailed me, told me how it went. So what I'm going to make with this is I'm going to make tater tot casserole. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Normally I make tater tot casserole with green beans and then this struck me and cannot see, but maybe you can hear that I'm just grinning from ear to ear. Pretty damn excited about this. So this is going to have a meat substitute as the base. And then I'm gonna toss in these fiddleheads instead of green beans, over which I'm gonna pour cream and mushroom soup. Then the top layer is just gonna be perfectly lined with tater tots and then baked together. But before I do all that, I wanna wash all these. I was thinking about not washing them because they're pretty clean. But you know, just in case they're kinda sandy, I'm just gonna really regret it. So just to test, I'm tossing them into my casserole pan. The long stems, I'm breaking up until they're a nice size to to bite into, maybe as short as you would like your green beans to be in the casserole, and I'm tossing them into the casserole pan. They're not the bottom layer, but, but I wanna get a measure of how many of these I wanna wash up right now. I don't know if Fiddleheads will keep better washed or unwashed. Oh, that one was really juicy. I love they have like this really slimy, viscous juice inside of them. Now these brown dry scales that are on the stems, they're not inedible. I don't know. I don't really mind them. Sometimes I'll remove them. If I'm cooking for someone else, I probably will remove them. But I, I don't know. I don't care. More fiber, you know? But just from washing these and agitating the water, some of the scales are going to come off. And I don't know, maybe the word scales sounds a little worrying, but they're really just kind of like real thin, papery bits. And maybe papery is also not the most appetizing word. I don't eat animals anymore, but let's say it's like the most delicately thin, crisped up, dry fish skin. How about that? Normally when I do this, I get a two pound bag of green beans. And as (laughs) quickly as this pan is filling up, I'm starting to think that maybe I might have like closer to 10 pounds of this. Maybe I'll try pickling some of these. Oh, oh yeah, that would be great. I just gotta remember that if I'm gonna pickle these because they contain thiaminase, I can look up how quickly thiaminase breaks down once cellular processes are stopped. It could be that it's just going to break down on its own with time, or, you know, potentially with the acidity of the vinegar. But if not, maybe I should quickly blanch them. You know, that might also help the pickling juices get in through the cell walls and into the crevices in the plant a little better. And we'll also give them a real nice bright green color. It really is a pleasure to cook these and you know pan fry these or toss them into boiling water and see them just that sudden shock of green color. I don't know if you've ever like tossed fresh seaweed into a pot Ugh, the same thing it happens and I, I just think it's fantastic. I know that kelp does that and so does bladderwrack, rack, also known as rockweed. I would guess that probably all green algae does that, but that's also just a guess. I'm also leaving all of the fiddleheads, all the rolled-up bits intact, and only breaking up the stems. So I guess the fiddle neck, the fingerboard. Oh, I should have been frying shit right now. Okay. Yeah, I think that'll do it. Oh, I'm turning the oven on to three fifty. And filling up a pot with water to rinse these in. While that is filling, I pulled down a wok. My largest frying pan these days I've been using for eating pancakes every workday. My work is really physically demanding, so to pack in the calories, I eat pancakes, which, what all is in my pancakes right now? I currently have, hmm, there might be some whole wheat flour on top of the regular white wheat flour. I also have plantain seed flour. And dock seed flour. And I think I have mallow seed flour and another flower of something that I foraged that I cannot remember what it is because I didn't label the container. It definitely uh, tastes weird, but it has some really nice nuttiness to it. But yeah, so I use my largest pan for that every morning, so I I don't know. I don't really want to have the flavor of this fried meat substitute in there. Okay, so I'm tossing in. Uh, Let's do some olive oil. So the type of meat substitute I have is, um, you know those like, uh, it's kind of like a wrapped plastic tubes of sausage that just comes out and it's like, I don't know, two and a half inches thick and six inches long maybe, seven inches. So this is like an imitation of that and it's i just threw it away what's it called the name of the company is light life and the product is gimme lean i don't know not a very impressive name but nobody asked me so i'm chopping up the sausage it also gets a little easier to chop the more it gets cooked and dried out, and various things in here and proteins start to denature. nature. Now I agitated the water a bit, so that's gonna get some of the scales off. To leave them in the pot, instead of pouring this through the calendar, I'm uh, scooping it out with my hand, picking out any little bits of leaf litter that is still stuck to them. I've wondered for a long time how people who commercially sell Fiddleheads get these scales off. I think the scales are mostly gone by the time you buy them, and I really don't know how you do that. If there's like some sort of machine or something that you use to agitate it. If I had a facility for doing this and I had one of those machines, I would definitely be selling these scales as a dietary fiber supplement. Okay, so I looked it up after the fact, and it turns out that the fiddleheads that don't have scales on them are actually not lady ferns. They are ostrich ferns. Ostrich ferns span a lot of North America, they grow all throughout the Northeast, and they also grow across Canada. They do not come down from British Columbia into Washington naturally. I do believe that they are grown here commercially. And so that's what you will see at like a farmer's market or something. While this is cooking up and the fiddleheads are dripping dry, I'm gonna grease this pan real quick. I don't know, maybe if I was like a legitimate grown-up, I'd have one of those sprays, but instead I'm just dumping some oil in there and moving it around and uh, spreading it around with a paper towel. Sometimes I just do it with my hand because I usually wash my hand after doing this and I figured I might as well just save a step and just use my hand to do it. I often do that with leftovers, uh, cause I'm a legitimate adult. Whew, hot. Hmm, sure is sticking to the pan. And speaking of dirty things to do with your hands, I wondered if maybe squishing this up with my hands before I put it in the pan might be a, a good solution. I guess, like, if I was doing this with a meat-based sausage, I would probably be really hesitant to do so. Because then I'm getting, like, salmonella and E. coli and all sorts of gross stuff on my hands. But one of the great things about cooking vegan is that you pretty much don't have to worry about salmonella at all. You know, maybe E. coli occasionally when lettuce or spinach or some sort of other green has been contaminated in the fields. But, also, if everybody's eating vegan, and we're not spreading manure on the fields, then there's no E. coli in our spinach. I don't want to be preachy about veganism, because I know getting preachy doesn't work, and I think people already hate vegans enough anyway, so I'll just let it go at that. Well, it's really sticking to the pan a lot. Maybe doing this with a wok was not the right choice, because I can't really scrape the bottom of it very well with my spatula. Oh well, again, it's vegan, so it doesn't even need to be cooked. It just has a nicer flavor and texture if you do. There we go. Give this a shake to distribute it around the pan. Didn't really work. I'll do it with the spatula. So yeah, I put two tubes of this in. That's about 28 ounces. So what's that? Three quarters of a kilo or something like that pan that I'm putting this into is glass 11 by 9 pan because I do have one of those deep oval ceramic casserole pans but it currently has a bog plant community living in it and I love that bog more than all the casseroles in the world. This is gonna be so good. (laughs) I'm so excited about this. Okay, I spread the fiddleheads across the top of the sausage in the pan. Yesterday, I made some cream of mushroom soup. I tossed together some onions and garlic and mushrooms and celery together in a pan. Fried those up for a while with some bay leaf. That was it, and I fried that until the juices had cooked down considerably. And then I threw in the soy milk, salt and black pepper, and thyme, a little bit of mustard seed and some of the powdered mushrooms, zero camella ultra pepperea, which tasted so bad in my soup, but it tastes fine in smaller quantities. And I feel like there's something else I tossed in there. I can't remember what, something I, oh, I forgot to put nutritional yeast in it. I was gonna do that. I already poured this cream of mushroom soup, about a quart of it, poured that over the top of the fiddleheads. So I think I'll just sprinkle some of this nutritional yeast across it. Now for the tots. Oof, that's hot. Now from careful study, I have determined that this pan will fit 98 tater tots in it. I think I had a different pan before that I used to be able to fit 100 tater tots. And this really bothers me because the curved edges of this glass pan, I can't fit as many tater tots in that row. Otherwise it would be 10 by 10 tater tots. You don't wanna just dump the tater tots in there. You need to very carefully line them up In perfect rows side by side. The rows at either short end will have eight tater tots across. Every other row will have ten because that's how math works. If you go online for a tater tot casserole recipe though, you're gonna see a lot of recipes. I'm guessing probably from people from like, I don't know, Wisconsin or Minnesota or something. You know, just heathens who are gonna be telling you to put like a cheesy sauce in this instead of cream and mushroom soup or they'll tell you to like sprinkle cheese on the top of it. Dude, I'm trying to podcast. Trying to podcast. Please stop. If anybody ever tells you that cheese belongs in a tater tot casserole, This person does not deserve to be in your life. If you live with this person who tells you this, your only option is to burn the house to the ground. It's unavoidable. I'm not saying like with the person inside of it. I'm just saying just to kind of cleanse the neighborhood of just kind of the... The house is just tainted by now. It's like when you have a house fire and maybe you can paint over everything and like get the smell to go away, but might not ever be the same again. That's how I feel about cheese in the tater tot casserole. Okay, almost there. Okay, currently have 96 tater tots in the casserole pan because of the ends and my goal is to have 98. And last time I made a tater tot casserole, the trick that I learned, oh, I need a sharper knife than that. It's a little bit hard to do because the tater tots are frozen and sometimes you're just gonna like break a tater tot in which case you just gotta start over with a new tater tot is I will cut a tater tot diagonal, corner to corner pretty hard to do because it's frozen see that one broke I need four diagonals hmm, that's not working well either I have a serrated knife I don't know if it's serrated or serrated I don't know which one of those the word is. Let's see if I can saw through this. Mm. Sure that worked. Okay, that's close enough. It'll fit. Okay. And so then I take these diagonally cut halves and I tuck them into each corner of the pan. And there we go. 98. So you don't need to put anything on top of a tater tot casserole sure as hell not putting cheese on there. But I like to just kind of pinch and sprinkle a little bit of salt on the top, a little bit of garlic powder, and just a little bit of chili powder. If I had paprika I would, but um, isn't paprika just a type of chili powder? This takes about 35 minutes and while I'm waiting for this to cook I'm gonna run out and pick up a prescription. So it's been a year since I recorded that. I do remember that the casserole turned out pretty well. I did kind of wish that I had not cooked it for as long, you know, because the fiddlehead just kind of like gave up a lot of the juices and they still tasted really good and they still had the kind of distinct kind of mucilaginous texture, which I think is really good. I know mucilaginous is not necessarily a appealing descriptor of food, But those qualities were still present in the casserole, even though I wish I had cooked it a little less long. That said, as usual, I cannot state strongly enough that it is each forager's own personal responsibility to educate themselves about the impacts that they have on nature, the impacts they have on other humans, and the impacts that they have on themselves. Consequences that are not only physical, but can also be legal. The worst atrocities that humans have committed were considered legal by their contemporaries and so many of the most beautiful aspects of the human experience have been illegal at one time or another. Hell, extramarital sex was just legalized in the state of Virginia. And it's great! So familiarize yourself with the laws around wild collecting in your area and the rationale behind those laws, and decide for yourself if the laws make sense. Then decide for yourself whether you're willing to accept the consequences that may come not only with breaking those laws, but also with following them. It is not only through lawbreaking that harm is done. Thanks again for listening. The banjo playing that you're hearing is the tune of my song, Toy Plastic Guns. If you'd like to hear a full version, search for it by name on YouTube. If you'd like to follow my personal rants, I'm on Twitter at Joe. I tweet daily about gender diversity in botany and related fields at 365 Botany Woman. And of course you can follow this podcast on Twitter at Radicast Podcast and email me at Radicastpodcast at gmail.com. Every episode that I release has a transcript available in the episode notes of the show's medium page because it is unethical to release spoken audio content without transcripts. For this purpose, I'll be giving a shout-out to another transcribed podcast with each episode. And this month, I'm excited to tell you about Sawbones. Sawbones is a medical history podcast that is especially focused on misguided attempts in at medicine. A lot of good medical science, also some good laughs. As yet another McElroy show, it's a fun and easy read and or listen. Fans of this show may enjoy their episodes on garlic and ginger, or even on horseshoe crabs and oleander. That said, please rate and review the Radicast so that other folks can find it too. If you don't do it, the haters win. And if you'd like to help me get this operation off the ground, I have a Patreon page to contribute to on a one-time or monthly basis. I look forward to talking to you all in the upcoming sixth episode of the Radicast. In the meantime, only do what promotes well-being. And next time, who knows, maybe it'll be the Yellow Glacier League.